Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Runners of the Bay podcast. Today, we have a special episode for you with Dr. Clyde Wilson, who is a nationally renowned expert on nutrition and metabolism. He also considers himself a nutritional engineer, and you'll hear why in this episode. He has a really um, interesting scientific and systematic approach to how he sort of calculates nutritional needs um, for all of your endurance sport endeavors um, that's really steeped in science and information and is incredibly smart. Um, we really enjoyed talking to Clyde. He just gave us such a wealth of information, and I think you'll really enjoy this episode and you'll take a lot from it as well. So enjoy this episode with Dr. Clyde Wilson. Hello, and welcome to the Runners of the Bay podcast. Today, I'm here with my co-host, Bridget Bradford, and we are also honored to have Dr. Clyde Wilson on the show to dig into some of the science behind optimal fueling for endurance athletes. So full disclosure, I was a a client of Dr. Wilson's a few years ago, um, and he really helped me. And, you know, I found some of the most important and helpful lessons that he taught me was really around not so much what I was eating, like that was definitely important and we talked about it, but it was more about when I eat. Um, and I think, you know, the more that that Dr. Wilson and I have spoken sort of offline that, you know, he's mentioned, that's really the thing that is probably one of the most important things that's also the least talked about. So we're going to dig into that a little bit more, but before we dive into the science of it all, we want to learn a little bit more about Dr. Clyde Wilson. So, uh, Dr. Wilson, welcome to the show, first of all. Thank you for having me. We're so honored that you're here. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background in? Um, I know you teach and you lecture and you talk to athletes a lot. What does that look like? And what types of athletes do you work with? Uh, well, life started for me in the nuclear engineering program in the U.S. Navy six years, and it really helped me to see most problems in life as an engineering problem, meaning you think about what tools are available to you, and then you fix whatever issues aren't that you're dealing with using those tools. And that really circles back to uh, your introduction to our discussion here on the importance of timing. And yes, you could think about amounts of protein and iron absorption and are you refueling enough. But if your timing is off, then you might not actually bridge your physiology from point A to point B, which is healing, increasing the fitness contribution to your performance to avoid overreaching and ultimately overtraining, right? That's that bridge that we want to cross is that healing bridge where you're doing the actual not only recovery, but moving past recovery to where you were, pushing past that into adaptation. And so this is, um, I found it to be a pretty functional way to think about that problem as just as an engineer would think about what are the tools and building blocks I have to build a bridge across this chasm to get from one side over to the other. And so I feel like I'm using that nuclear engineering background just as much as my PhD in chemistry and research in biochemistry focused now on metabolism to look at this issue of avoiding overtraining and not only that, but to the point where you're optimizing the healing process, which is really going in the opposite direction of overreaching and overtraining. And the last piece on that before I 
briefly mention my teaching and research a little more is that I, my sense is that, you know, most of the athletes who have come to work with me, they're already overreached and potentially overtrained. And that's the most common element, whether it's a competitive soccer player, marathoner, whether it's ultra or more sprint distance, is that if an athlete isn't manipulating their healing capacity with uh, stress management, sleep, and their nutrition, that they won't ever discover what their true genetic mm. potential is and will experience overtraining as a misnomer because it's actually their nutrition or their sleep that's generating those symptoms and inhibiting the fitness adaptation as a contribution to their performance as opposed to the training itself being the problem. It's the healing around that training that's actually a problem. And so maybe we should rename it as a under healing as opposed mm. to an over training in most instances. Wow, yeah. And you, you can see that fairly clearly when you have an athlete that like in high school and in the beginning of their collegiate career, we're doing really well. And then they'll plateau and start to decline in their performance capacity and might be entering a professional career where they have 10, 20, 30% lower uh, capacity than they did five years earlier. And really have to push extremely hard and com and start to compromise their health just to be able to maintain competitiveness, which is absolutely unnecessary when you just do an hour by hour simple assessment. What is the body getting and what is it not getting? Like when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, just looking, not just thinking in terms of grams per day, which is, I call that the sledgehammer approach of, you know, trying to fix something that really needs a little bit of a, you know, tweezers to tease apart and you come in with a sledgehammer and say, well, I've got enough grams, so I'm good. And that really doesn't tell you how many hours you're healing as opposed to not healing. I don't care how much protein you eat. If you're not sleeping well, you won't use it and you'll just urinate it out. It's as if you didn't eat any. So it's really the, the question is how much are we utilizing? And that's why timing is so central. Mm -hmm. And in my view, uh, primary to estimating what your daily needs are. Because if your timing is off, you're not going to use even half of that. So my teaching is uh, a, a decade food pharmacology in the Stanford Medical School and a decade in the UCSF Medical School, which up there was in biochemistry, biophysics, and uh, kinesiology, 14 years in the athletics department and the program in human biology and teaching them as separate concepts and only in the last half dozen years converging them into teaching metabolism as the convergence between the insult of exercise and how nutrition has to cater to that and how that correlates to stress-sleep balance. So how these elements ultimately converge so that we can optimize all of them or whichever one is your main focus. Like if you want to improve your sleep, if you want to improve your fitness, or if you want to improve your health, right? So you can have one focus, or you can be trying to optimize or hack the whole system all at once. And you can learn a lot from the literature. And I've gone through the literature incessantly for 20 years in teaching and research. But ultimately, for an individual, that only gives you the common truths for all of us. From that, you have to launch into your own experimental process, discover what your individual truth is. Like for some people, big breakfast is important. For others, it isn't. Mm -hmm. What I'm interested in is what is the common ground? What is the common truth for all people, both those who need breakfast and those who don't, that 
from which you would experimentally discover what is not only the best for you psychologically that you're the most comfortable with, but what is also the best for you physiologically to which your body responds the best. And sometimes you have to compromise between the two. And those are, that's really what I, what I focus on in my teaching. My research on metabolism with Roger Cook in biochemistry, biophysics at UCSF, we're writing up now a paper on human tissue. Before that, it was uh, tarantula and rodent tissue. And now we've, you know, we got some uh, tissue from living people who walk into a lab, they get this syringe to pull out some muscle out of their quadricep. And, you know, that's the tissue bank in the University of Kentucky. They send it to us. And then we look at the metabolic rate of that and more specifically the super relaxed state, which is the mechanism whereby the body shuts down when there's not enough calories compared to what it needs. So studies, for example, show not from our lab, but with living humans, particularly athletes, but as well, also separate studies with type 2 diabetics, that when your needs are met by a deficit less than 25% of your total daily needs, that the body starts to shut down mm. potentially profoundly by as much as 500 or more calories a day, like the biggest loser contestants shuts down by five, 600 calories a day, even six years after being on the show. Mm -hmm. How does the body do that? Perfectly healthy body. You get up out of a chair, you're moving totally fine. You, there's no indications of disease. And yet the body has shut down by 500 calories or more a day. And same is true for an overtrained athlete by 500 calories or more a day or for a type two diabetic who isn't on their, on their taking their medications yet, who doesn't even realize necessarily 500 calories or more a day. And finally, we have a mechanism that can, uh, that demonstrates clearly how the body can shut down even twice as much as that, even a thousand calories a day, which is the motor proteins and muscle totally shutting off as opposed to idling while you're relaxed. And so the, the, this helps us to understand what the body does in response to excess deficit. Like if you're trying to diet too hard or if you're trying to exercise too hard mm -hmm. and diet at the same time. Power to rate ratio is a common goal in athletics, both to reduce how much body mass you have to move with your muscle as well as to increase agility in team sports so that there's less mass uh, but still with high power to change directions, right? Agility. So this is a common goal that athletes have. And typically, it, it's athletes try to achieve that by manipulating calories, not realizing that they can trigger overreaching and, over and ultimately overtraining with their effort to try to optimize their performance through mm -hmm. power to weight ratio. Wow. That's a lot and and interesting and it it all makes sense. Um, That's what I live for, yeah. right? This is, this is this has been a twenty year path for me. Yeah. Before that, as a recreational powerlifter, and uh, and in the Navy, and then getting my PhD. Mm -hmm. But since then, teaching and research for twenty years since getting my PhD has really uh, converged on this whole concept of uh, how do you minimize. Uh, destroying the body? Mm -hmm. How do you push it as hard as possible for the long term mm -hmm. as opposed to let's go win a race and then in six months I can't yeah. even race? Yeah. I mean, so you and I talked about how, you know, most of our listeners, myself included, um, are, are really looking to stay healthy for the purposes of, you know, long-term performance while having a healthy body composition. And sometimes it, it seems like that should be easy, but it's actually, it feels really challenging and confusing, especially when, 
you know, even amateur athletes are running 60, 70 miles a week. Our, our caloric needs are still much more, you know, higher than sort of someone that's not doing that, but we're also not quite at the elite level and sort of sometimes in this challenging in-between state, which is one of the reasons I came to see you initially, because I just, there wasn't anything out there that really told me what I should be doing. It was either here's how you train like a professional athlete or here's what you eat for, you know, just being a moderately active, healthy person. Right. Um, So one of the things that we also talked a lot about um, as we were prepping for this that I thought was so interesting, and and I know you gave a talk on it uh, a little while ago, um, but was talking about the difference between fasted and starved. And you mentioned earlier, there's sort of a period when our body actually, when we start to do harm, when we haven't eaten. So can you talk a little bit more about the difference between fasted and starved? And how do we know when when we're going from being fasted to actually being starved? There's a series of published papers with competitive athletes, male and female, that show a loss in hormone levels and resting metabolic rate, driving up body fat when the body transitions from one to the other, fasted to starved. And these papers don't refer to it explicitly as a transition from fasted to starved, but rather a transition from uh, being healthy and athletic to a loss in that capacity. And the answer is that when your body is in too many hours of a nutrient deficit, that it starts to be hurt by that, so we can call it starved. Because the word fasting comes with a lot of positive connotations. Mm-hmm. Like you're losing body fat, uh, you're probably going to live longer, like the mice and the worms where they restrict calories. Right? There's the... Um, the, there's the janitorial cleanup system in our cells, the lysozymes that that you know clean up our uh, damaged proteins, and so they go into overdrive when there's not enough calories. So it's kind of like a cellular cleanse when you don't eat, and all of this fasting uh, maelstrom of discussion on the internet has generated. Uh, recommendations to not eat breakfast, not eat lunch, not eat dinner, not eat for 24, 36, 48 hours. And athletes are hearing this and like, well, I want to have a high power to weight ratio. I want to drop body fat. And it turns out that not eating is healthy. So maybe I'll just stop eating half the time. And which is in some sense, a psychotic reaction to none of the (laughs) dietary schemes from our last century working, right? (laughs) First, it was all about calories. Then it was all about eating protein and cutting fats. Then it became, let's not eat carbs. Well, if none of that works, let's just stop eating, right? And so that's kind of my humorous take on where we've ended up, which is that nothing works, so let's do nothing. And And there is a a tremendous amount of research that supports this whole concept of fasting, but and and that's fine. And there's nothing to disagree with there. But on the other hand, we also know that eating provides benefits. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Kind of important, yeah. I think it's almost funny that we have to say that at this point. I I gave a a a webinar to a fire department uh, recently where there was some very smart individuals who knew a lot about the research on fasting where I had to point out about an hour into it uh, that 
eating also provides benefits. <laughs> and oh gosh, sure, yeah, you know, and it. it you don't want to have the pillow effect where your thinking takes the shape of the last paper you read or slept on. Mm-hmm. And you, that's, that's a danger. You want to keep, a, you know, a big picture umbrella perspective of the simultaneous truths, not just of different opinions, but of opposing completely opposite opinions, that they are all true and that we have to find the common ground in between as a starting point from which to launch to discover what is our individual truth. Because if you try to find your individual truth for some recommendation based on, a, you know, one coach or one athlete or one friend who has their individual truth, you might not ever find your optimum uh, genetic potential. You might never not ever realize that. So knowing what that common ground is sets the stage from which you discover what your individual truth is. So what is, what is that common ground? How do we figure out whether or not we should eat breakfast or just have a snack and what should go into that snack or how much we have to refuel after our workouts? And the answer emerges almost like a simple algorithm, elementary school math, out of these uh, papers that I'm going to send you links to for your, so that your readers who like to geek out on stuff as I do can, and can look at that awesome. original research that shows that Uh, After some number of hours of being in a nutrient deficit, specifically a a calorie deficit, they don't look at uh, different macronutrients. The the research up to this point is just looking at calories. We can talk about macronutrients within that later. But Mm -hmm. these main papers that are helping us to understand whether you have to eat at all or not are just looking at calories. And the answer is that for females, three hours, males, four hours, when you're deeper in a deficit than, the, than a fourth of your daily needs, that the body starts to shut down, that uh, you lose menstrual cycle, your testosterone to cortisol ratio is cut in half for males, that body fat goes up by 03 to 0.5% for each hour that you're in that deficit. So even if you're overeating in the second half of your day, if you're undereating in the first half, all of these effects will happen as if your body has been starved, mm. even if overall in your day you're overeating. So this is a major point that I want to stress here, the critical central importance of timing, the evenness of nutrient flow through the day so that you don't incapacitate your lean tissue so much in the morning with your hard training when you're not eating as much that no matter how healthy you are later and greens, juices and kale, and I don't care what you do, you will not overcome the deficit from the early part of the day. So here's the simple way to think about it. You start by just estimating a number, even if it's totally off and wrong, of how many calories you think you need on a rest day, right? So your your basic metabolic rate for maintaining brain function and all your other organ systems, for healing from previous workouts, and to just feel good on a rest day. And that's going to be anywhere from 1,200 to 2,400 calories for somebody who's in the off season, right? So not in their, their mm-hmm. peak training, Closer to 1,200 for somebody who's closer to 100 pounds and closer to 2,400 for somebody who's closer to 200 pounds. So for ease of the conversation, let's just go with 1,200. That's 50 calories an hour, 1,200 divided by 24. So when one-fourth of your day passes, that's six hours, one-fourth of your calorie needs would have been used up. Hopefully that makes sense. Fourth of your day, Mm -hmm. fourth of your daily calorie needs. It's going to be a little less while you're sleeping, a little more while you're awake, but we're going to ignore that because it's not different by more than 20% from one to the other. So when you've had a full meal, healthy, balanced, 
whatever that means. And we can talk about what that means later, but mm-hmm. most people's common sense, you have a sense of what a balanced, full, healthy meal means for you. You're going to be fed for six hours because unprocessed foods, you know, if it's not like garbage type stuff, it's going to take several hours to digest. And even after digestion is done, your body has a few more hours left to get nutrients out of that. So for six hours, you're fed after eating. At the six hour point, roughly, you transition to being fasted and you're going to benefit from that. Fat burning goes up. You don't lose much muscle mass. But after about another six hours, another fourth of your 24-hour day, where you're now in a deficit by one-fourth of your daily needs because it's one-fourth of your 24-hour day, that's where you transition to losing menstrual cycle, testosterone cortisol ratio getting cut in half, body fat going up by 0.3% of your weight for each additional hour. So at the 12-hour point, where you've been fasted for six hours, fed for six, fasted for six, you are now transitioning to being starved. So when you look at studies of intermittent fasting, people are losing profound levels of muscle mass in two Mm -hmm. to three month interventions because they skip breakfast. Contrast that with studies going back over half a century of people participating in Ramadan fasting patterns where they don't skip breakfast because they're eating before sunrise and after sunset, where the Mm -hmm. greatest muscle loss in that month is four to five pounds, even for athletic individuals. It is profound to see how much better the body does with the same caloric restriction, the same fasting experience, but without a starvation experience. Mm -hmm. In contrast, if you just eat whenever you don't want to eat, which is when you wake up and after your training where you're deepest in the starved state, your body is going to take a hit for that even if you overeat later. So this conversation isn't about whether you're overeating or undereating, but about timing. Mm -hmm. Your feedback. When you say take a hit for it, so even if you're eating when you don't want to eat, can you explain that more? So when we wake up, and mm-hmm. when we exercise, there's an, adren- there's an adrenaline response mm-hmm. and a cortisol response that's just a natural part of waking up and a natural part of exercise. And those hormones inhibit hunger perception. Mm-hmm. So we are least likely to perceive hunger when we wake up and after training, which are the two times when we're in our deepest deficit, which is going to incapacitate our ever realizing our full genetic potential mm-hmm. for our fitness component of our performance. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's important to eat something when you wake up to break that fasted state so that we don't get into starvation. And then after you exercise, it's also important to eat something to sort of continue that on. And if we don't, we we put our bodies at risk for overtraining. Absolutely. And I want to add one aspect of detail to each of those comments mm-hmm. and, or summaries that you just made. So first off, when we wake up, Technically, I'm not suggesting that you break the fast. Mm-hmm. I'm suggesting that you break the starvation. So we call it breakfast because it's breaking the fast. But the reality is you're right at that transition between fasted and starvation when you wake up. So if you're, not, if you're just going to go on a shakeout run, you don't need to eat anything. You're doing a 20-minute, you know, slow pace, eight-minute mile. I mean, you're just, you're just you know, rolling along not a lot of stress on the body. You come, you're back at home 30 minutes later, you're eating a light breakfast and that only needs to be 150 or 200 calories if you're going to eat again a few hours later. Mm-hmm. You don't need 
to have your largest meal at the start of the day. You just want to get out of the starvation mode and into the fasted mode. So now here's the big, the big asterisk that comes along with that. What if it's not just a 20-minute shakeout run? Mm-hmm. Now you're going to drop into a deficit much faster than the 50 calories an hour or for a 200-pound athlete, 100 calories per hour. You're going to, let's say you roll out of bed and you're at that transition between fasting and starved. Now you go on a 90-minute run or you're going to the track, you're doing repeats or you're doing a, a, an LT or a VO2 max workout. You're going you're gonna to drop by... 300 to 1,000 calories, the equivalent of six to 20 hours of starvation, mm. after which you're nauseous and, don't, and definitely don't want to eat. Mm-hmm. So you'd rather go on the foam roller and take your shower first. You will never recover from that. The, the, the deficit is so deep. So what the, the studies that I'm going to send you the links to show is that not only are the athletes' healing capacity crippled when they're in a deficit by a fourth of their daily needs by more than a few hours, they showed it was just as bad for the athletes who had the deepest deficit for even one hour. Mm -hmm. Meaning that if you're going to do a one-hour really intense workout, you've got to eat beforehand. Mm -hmm. You have to pull yourself not just out of the starved state, but out of the fasted state into the fed state. Now remember, fed state is six hours after eating a balanced meal. So when I say fed, I don't mean full. I don't mean there's a bunch of food in your stomach. I'm using these terms in a physiological sense, not in a psychological conscious perception, Mm -hmm. right? Like I feel full, I feel stuffed, and I'm therefore fed. I'm not using these words in that way at all. I'm trying to define, redefine these words in a functional way so that athletes as well as diabetics and anybody in between can have a reasonable answer that is unique to them and benefits them to simple questions like, should I eat before I work out? Mm-hmm. Should I eat again an hour after I work out? Do I have to have a breakfast or not? And the answer is yes and no to all of those at the mm-hmm. same time. Because yeah. if, you're, if you're deep into the starved state, the meal becomes critical so that you can heal from whatever you're doing, whether it's daily wear and tear or a hard workout. If, on the other hand, you're only in the middle of your fasted state, let's say you, don't, you didn't sleep that much that night and you had dinner relatively late. It's only been eight hours. You could do a, a one-hour decent workout and you're barely crossed down into the starved state at the end of it. Mm-hmm. But if you had dinner at 8 p.m., went to bed at midnight, got up at seven and you're on the track at eight, that's 12 hours. Mm-hmm. You're starting your workout in the, in the starved state mm-hmm. and even a moderate workout is going to thrash your ability to heal. No matter how many smoothies and greens juices and ginger root, beet root, I don't care what you do. Mm-hmm. So this is really about challenging us to answer the question whether or not we should eat and how much. And the reality is you don't ever have to eat a lot. You could do 12 snacks a day, eight snacks a day with never having a single meal. Or you could choose foods that digest really slow like vegetables and beans and practically just eat once a day with one or two snacks added. So the, you, can, you can do whatever you want when you think it through. 
Mm-hmm. When you just ask the question, what are the cells in my body experiencing? Because when you're eating beans with vegetables, you're getting a protein and nutrients and carbs that takes eight hours to digest so that your body is in the fed state for 12 hours instead of six. Mm-hmm. So now you're in the fasted state for six hours. You're not starving until you're asleep where your body uses less calories. And 24 hours later, you're eating again and you start the process. Then you refuel your workouts. And it's like, so whether it's 12 meals or one, plus some snacks or at least one snack to refuel, you, you want to challenge yourself to assess whatever crazy diet has been recommended to you to think about where the deepest ditch is that your body is experiencing and fill that hole. Mm-hmm. I think that's like that advice about, about eating and about the difference between like a 20 minute run versus a big workout, I think is so helpful. And it's so, to Mimi's point earlier, it's so hard to find like that, level of of kind of this is this is what you should do. I feel like there's lots of usually lots of gray areas. I think one thing that I think about and that I hear a lot of runners say is so let's say I ate a little I broke my fat I slept, you know, I hadn't eaten for 12 hours. I slept, I wake up, I eat a little bit of breakfast. I go to a big workout. I'm out doing hard stuff for 90 minutes, but I take a gel. So this isn't a well-balanced, you know, source of nutrients. This is basically just sugar, but it's something. Um, and afterwards I feel like crap because that was a hard workout and then I don't want to eat, but I kind of tell myself like, well, I, I took in some calories, so I'm actually not, I'm not in that bad of shape right now. Um, you've kind of mentioned a few times like macronutrients and well-balanced meals. So how does that play a role in like when I am taking in kind of junk calories or calories that are easy to metabolize while I'm working out, how does that then affect what I should be doing afterwards and how I should be thinking about like whether I'm fasted or potentially going into a starved state? Great question, Bridget. And it opens a can of worms. So let me try to do this. <laughs> For me, let me try to do this as quickly as possible um, because it's it's really could deserves its own separate conversation. There's there's two main ways relevant to our conversation here on how the body perceives whether you're starving or not. The brain, central nervous system, collectively assesses if you're eating enough by the hormone levels that respond to your food, as well as the nutrient levels of the food itself in your bloodstream, like blood sugar. So that's one thing. And that's mainly how the brain responds to your meals. There's a second way that your body detects starvation, which is the muscle itself without the brain. And that is by glycogen levels. Adenosine monophosphate kinase, or AMPK, is the master switch for fat burning that every endurance athlete, whether they realize it or not, is after to activate. It is the ultimate adaptation goal for every endurance athlete is to activate adenosine monophosphate kinase or AMPK. So you might not have realized it on the trail or the track or, you know, your indoor treadmill, you know, even on the, even on the shakeout run that you want to activate this thing AMPK. But that thing, AMPK, is trapped in your muscle glycogen. So when you do a workout and you don't refuel, there's tons of activation of this thing, AMPK, that activates fat burning. The downside is when it's activated, it deactivates what's called the mechanistic 
target of rapamycin or mTOR, which completely incapacitates healing. So which is it? Are you going to optimize fat burning to the mm-hmm. point where you destroy your ability to heal? Or are you going to refuel to the point where you maximize the healing rate, but now you shut down the fat burning adaptation? Depending on your genetics, where you are in your training cycle, and the, the distance of your targeted event, like half marathon versus ultra, is going to determine where you want to sit in that balance. But where you, the, the optimum target within that balance is always going to include some refueling because healing is a necessary requirement to adapt. So this is my initial answer to your question, where an athlete is taking in a goo or, a, or you know, one of these blocks or just ordering maltodextrin powder, <laughs> which, is put in mm-hmm. to, which is used to make these gels and these blocks. You're just putting it into water. And studies show that uh, athletes can consume and use up to a gram, about four calories of glucose per minute, so that you don't have to eat those carbs later on. So it, you don't just have the benefit of being able to eat less carbs later, uh, but also that it increases the power output during the workout itself. So if you have workouts that are focused on the fat burning adaptation, then you'd want to undereat, which isn't to say eat nothing, right? It depends on where you are in the, at that threshold of fasting to starvation, whether you eat anything at all. But if you're still in the fasted state, not starving yet, then you could go without eating anything and do your shakeout run and actually activate adenosine monophosphate kinase for a fat burning adaptation and a shakeout run where you weren't trying to get an adaptation at all. And so I call that a deficit training or a starvation training where you're risking being in the starvation state, but pretty sure you're not quite there yet. And thereby getting a training adaptation to a workout that where you weren't even expecting one as opposed mm-hmm. to the higher power output workouts where you don't get the adaptation you're after if you don't eat something so that you can optimize that power output, right? Mm-hmm. So how you eat before a workout should combine with the insult of the workout to optimize the adaptation together between the nutrition and the workout both. So let's say you're in a shakeout run, you're burning 150 calories and in one of these harder track workouts, you're burning 800 calories in the hour after the warm-up and before the cool-down. The percentage of the calories that's carbohydrate loss that you should consider refueling in a lighter workout is somewhere between 50 and 65%. You're below lactate threshold. So not only are you not burning many calories, but not a lot of those calories are sugar loss, so there's not a lot to refuel. Mm -hmm. So you can just eat breakfast, forget the refuel. Right, so you, you can go take your shower and then eat. Mm-hmm. No big deal. You're, getting, you're enhancing the fat-burning adaptation to the low-intensity workout, and you weren't deep into the starved state. You were still just in the fasted state. Everything's fine. As soon as you go for the harder workouts, everything changes. When you're losing significantly more than 200 calories, and, there, and particularly when there's variability and in intensity, it's not just a steady pace throughout the workout, then the percentage that can be sugar burning starts to approach what a, what a strength workout or a power workout in a gym would be like mm. for a strength athlete, right? It starts to, it moves up to 75, even 85%. And for like strength workouts with bands and weights, it'd be like 95%, right? So it, you start to transition to the 
percentage of the calories being sugar loss uh, as if it was a strength workout when you're doing sprints. So as much as like 800 meter repeats, uh, it's, it would fall into that category. So if you're doing a 600 calorie workout, 400 of that might be carbohydrate, even 450. That is going to activate a tremendous amount of adenosine monophosphate kinase for subsequent fat burning, which is why sprints are so productive for diabetics and people trying to get healthy and increase fat burning, uh, as opposed to steady pace cardio, because it activates so much AMPK for the non-athlete. For the athlete, what that does is generates more mitochondria so that you raise both your VO2 max and lactate threshold at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's awesome, except that it deactivates mTOR and therefore deactivates healing so that within a month you're feeling overreached mm -hmm. and within six months overtrained, meaning that even that for the whole next year, you're not going to have a high enough performance level. So that challenges us, demands of us that we refuel our workouts with chomps and goos and, you know, maltodextrin and various things like that. The question is then how much, right? So if you have a sense of what your, your calorie burn is and what percentage of that is carbohydrate, and let's say your calorie burn in a harder workout ranges from 300 to 900 calories, let's say for some particular athlete, and the percentage of those calories that's carbohydrate is somewhere in the two thirds to three quarters range. So we're looking at a refuel of 200 to 700 calories, for example. But you want your body to be partly starved to maximize the fat burning adaptation. So instead of replacing 200 to 700 calories, you just replace 200 uh, or 100 to 500 calories of, of glucose. If you do less than that, even for a moderate workout, you're going to disable your healing capacity at the expense of increased fat burning rate, and you will never realize the benefit of the increased fat burning capacity. You'll never realize it. Mm. Yeah. So if you're fueling 100 calories during a workout and then 1 to 200 calories after, you might only need one cup of carb in your next meal and you're done. If you don't take in any carb during the workout, that's fine. But then you do 200 after, you still need 300 in your next meal. So now you're going a little more than a cup in your next meal, which can increase body fat unless you eat it with vegetables to slow down the digestion rate. So the more you can put carbohydrate into and right after a workout, the less the carb load is in your subsequent meals where you have to you know, bolster up that meal with a bunch of fats, protein, vegetables to slow down the carbs so that you're not hurt by them. Mm -hmm. So there's a serious advantage to getting the carbohydrate in immediately while the muscle is still absorbing at a high rate. Because if you try to refuel with your subsequent meal, the insulin response is going to send some of it to the muscles where you don't need it mm -hmm. and to body fat and everywhere else, not just the muscles that were just contracting. Mm -hmm. So the, the half time, so there's a loss in the fueling rate to muscle after a, a workout between 20 to 30 minutes. So when you wait a half hour, the absorption rate of the glucose that you're, that you're re trying to refuel with only goes to those muscles by 50% compared to if you'd consumed it right away. If you have too much nausea to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or a muffin or a yam or whatever, then drink maltodextrin or, or have a granola bar or if you can stomach it, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or replace mm -hmm. the jelly with honey or banana, whatever. It's the bread you're after, the yams you're after. So you want starch. Mm -hmm. Starch is tubers and cereals. Tubers are yams and potatoes from the roots of plants. Cereals are harvestable grasses, rice, quinoa, potato, oh, not, not potato, but rice, quinoa, corn, oats, and wheat. If you're trying to avoid gluten, you'd get rid of the wheat. But whatever is made from those things, whether it looks like bread with cracker, muffin, bagel, 
a bowl of cereal, bowl of pasta, whatever it is that's uh, easy to transport, easy to eat and process right after training, you would use. A 200-calorie target is, is reasonable for a competitive athlete when they do a moderate length and moderate intensity workout, more like 300 calories, like a full bagel after one of the harder workouts. Mm-hmm. And then there's the whole protein issue. This mTOR thing that I was been, have mentioned several times that is deactivated by your fat burning adaptation is triggered to turn on not just when you deactivate adenosine monophosphate kinase with refueling, but it is further activated by the presence of amino acids. And so that's where the advantage of having amino acids right after training comes in. So if you've got like a one-to-one ratio of carb to protein after a very low-intensity workout or a four or five-to-one ratio of carbohydrate to protein after a high-intensity workout, the reason that that ratio changes is because you want 10 to 20 grams. It's actually 0.3 grams per kilogram body weight. So 10 to 20 grams of protein to activate mTOR, but that's not urgent. You can wait until your next meal. The, this whole concept of protein being urgent is misleading because when you delay protein, you only reduce the healing by one hour out of 24, right? You mm-hmm. just you get your protein into your next meal. There's no window that shuts. There's no window or door that closes for protein. You just delay the healing mm-hmm. slightly. With the refueling, there is a real window that shuts that will not reopen until you work out again. Because the absorption rate of the glucose drops by, tw- by 50% in 20 to 30 minutes. After that point, you're getting as much of your fuel delivered to your tissues because of the insulin response, not because of the workout itself. Mm. So there is an urgency to refueling that does not exist with the protein. And I would add to that that, that rehydration is, is even more critical because glucose is co- co-transported with water. So if you're not hydrated, then the glucose will more sit in your intestine than being transported into the blood to get to the muscle where you need it. Wow. I I have a similar question and, and admittedly this is selfish because I have a long run, 17 to 18 miles on the docket for tomorrow. And, you know, when I run marathons, I'm pretty, di- I've, Bridget, Bridget and I talk a lot about marathons as a puzzle and you're constantly trying to solve for different parts of the marathon. And one thing that I've been trying to solve for over the eight marathons that I've run is this nutrition piece. And I finally feel like I've nailed it. And it's because for me, having a gel uh, every 30 minutes, and, and so I don't go by mileage, I just go by time, making sure that you know I'm doing every water stop or at least every other, um, that works for me. But what I find when I go for a long run, whether that, you know, anywhere from like 13 to 23 miles is... I'm really bad at taking nutrition. So I'll probably either wait until halfway through the run and then maybe I'll like backload the nutrition um, or I just won't take enough and I'll be like, this is sick, but like, oh, proud of myself. I only took one gel on that run or I only took two. And without fail, I feel terrible for the entire day. I get a headache, I'm weak, um, I can't do anything. And so I guess my question is for tomorrow, I'm also celebrating my boyfriend's brother's birthday. I want to have a good time. So should I follow my marathon sort of rule of thumb of eating every 30 minutes or, you know, every 45? Um, how does it work for, for the long training runs? 
Well, my answer is completely different with your having to go to a birthday party. Okay. <laughs> there will be pizza. I will be eating it. <laughs> so do the run in as close a proximity as you can to eating the pizza since oh. that's your refuel. Mm. And you are benefiting from under eating in your training, even when you don't feel as good afterwards as because of the increased stress. I mean, we don't want to think of our training as a competition. The competition isn't right. about stressing the body. It's about your time. Okay. Whereas the training is about stressing your body to optimize the subsequent time. So you are getting an adaptation that benefits you when you cut your fueling in half. However, realize that you're getting a lot more AMPK activation, which is suppressing mTOR much more on that training. Mm -hmm. So if you don't refuel afterwards, because you're thinking there's pizza and cake coming, so let's just not refuel at all, you're not going to heal for three or four days. You'll mm -hmm. peak in your delayed onset muscle soreness at four to five days instead of one to two days. Mm -hmm. And until you peak in your delayed onset muscle soreness, you know that you're not clearing the damage out at, at, the, at the maximum rate. So it's going to take you more than a week to heal from that one run. Mm -hmm. It's going to reduce your ability to do your next five workouts. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't cut your fueling during the training session by more than the half that you've already done. Mm -hmm. And I would refuel at least a couple hundred calories right after the run, even if only an hour later you're going to be getting pizza and ice cream. Yeah, it's going to be probably about six hours, honestly, because it's it's hot here. So I'm going to go out early, hopefully be done by around 10, 10.30. Pizza's probably coming at about five. So I'm going to have to get some stuff in there right away. So in that case, you're refueling for your training is decoupled and unrelated to what you do in the evening. That's right. So in that case, you will, you know, if you're refuel at least 200 calories of glucose for each hour of your long run, so you subtract out of that what you're taking in during, mm -hmm. you'll take in two or 300 after, mm -hmm. and then whatever's left over, you put into your subsequent meal. Mm -hmm. And then before you go eat the pizza at the party, you have a huge salad at your house so that you're not distracted by having to do that at the party to slow down the digestion of the carbs that are going to come flooding in. There will be carbs. They will be great. <laughs> and that's yeah. a good thing. And I, and I support that mm -hmm. as long as you have salad waiting in your stomach to mix with it mm -hmm. so that it doesn't scream into your bloodstream and make you fall asleep with, from an insulin response, which will also hurt your subsequent day of training. So the simple answer is you eat your big salad and then you go have a good time. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned a few things about overtraining and about the relationship between overtraining and the the time around nutrition, the quality of that nutrition. Um, so, if I if I am thinking that I might be overtraining, that it might all be related to these things, what are some warning signs that I should be looking out for? You just mentioned to Mimi that like you know this kind of delayed onset muscle soreness is something that that would happen if she didn't fuel properly. Um, you know, maybe other things connected to sleep. Like, what are the yes. things that we should be watching out for? Three of them. First, okay. your waking restfulness. Mm. How rested do you feel when you wake up? You can use a scale of one to 10, or you can use a scale of one to three. However uh, accurate, subjectively, you feel like you can assess that or how much, or depending on how much variability you notice from day to day, 
the more in tune you are with your body and think about these things, the more you'd want to lean in the direction of a one to 10 scale as opposed to just one to three. Because mm-hmm. one to three is more like slept great, oh, it was okay, or not so good, right? But if, if you feel like there's more nuances that you can detect, then don't just use a scale of one to three. Second subjective indicator is how your mental and physical energy is through the day if there are dips in it or if it's brittle, like if you mm. don't eat lunch quite as early, you fall apart. Or if, you know, your sleep is a few hours less, you feel great when you wake up, but then in the afternoon you fall apart. So if, if you have dips or if it's more brittle, then that's an indication that you're at a threshold where your body is having a hard time maintaining a sense of wellness. Yeah. The third is the recovery rate i.e. soreness of the muscles that of the main agonists of the workouts themselves, which is delayed onset muscle soreness. Delayed onset muscle soreness is good, and you should peak in, its, in your conscious pain perception as fast as possible. Not five days mm. later, but hopefully one day later. Mm. Because the digestive enzymes that are released by our immune system, our white blood cells, to clear out the damage, if your immune system is strong, will peak within a day at the most two days, especially masters athletes. As we get, you know, natural aging will delay the peak and that will stay plateaued as your immune system is maximizing that the clearance of that damage. And you can't heal until that damage is cleared. So until your delayed onset muscle soreness has peaked, you are not maximizing the rebuilding to replace it either. So if anything, you'd need the most protein at your peak delayed onset muscle soreness. Most athletes are peaking in their DOMS from some workout continuously. And therefore, protein needs are continuous whether you're working out that day or not. As opposed to carb needs, which really dances around the whole refueling concept and therefore fluctuates tremendously from day to day. That is so helpful, those three things. It's so interesting when you said the brittleness, like I've never heard someone describe it that way, but that's definitely something that I have experienced where you just feel like it just takes a few little things. Like I miss mm-hmm. a snack and then like, and even kind of like, like that irritability. Um, yes. And it makes, it makes so much sense um, in this context, but I had never put those two puzzle pieces together. I've seen it so often and experienced it myself. Uh, trust me, that's not like a intellectual conclusion. That that comes from living in the trenches and suffering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're going to, I mean, this conversation is helping me and I think it's going to help a lot of people, you know, identify that they're in the trench and hopefully yes. start to, to crawl their way out of it. Mm-hmm. So you've worked with quite a few elite athletes. Um, are there consistent things that come up? What are kind of the lessons that you've, that you've learned? Um, you know, I, I know you work with athletes across the board, but for the sake of this conversation, maybe focus on, on runners. Uh, note that uh, I'm highly biased in <laughs> that athletes are self-selected that mm-hmm. in that they're already struggling when they come to me. I've mm-hmm. never had anybody athlete or not come to me saying, life is great. I really don't have any goals. Can we just talk? I've never had anybody do that unless it's in the classroom, Mm. right? But in terms of like a one-on-one constructive, like engineering discussion on how are we going to fix problems, it's Mm -hmm. there's always a problem to fix. 
And that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Athletes and as well as non-athletes can be fiercely independent and want to think things through and experiment on their own. And I totally get that. So usually by the time an athlete comes to me, a runner or not, they're frustrated with not being able to fix a problem. And when I started working with individuals 20 years ago, and I'm about 2,500 individuals into it now, I thought that everyone would be so different from each other that I'd have to rethink nutrition programs from the, you know, from a blank sheet each time. Mm -hmm. And within 10 years, I had a blueprint that I modified for each person because of how often the same issues came up. Mm -hmm. And those issues are, are so common for most people because of the fundamental similarities in our physiology that I mentioned earlier, where our uh, sympathetic nervous system is responding to waking up and responding to exercise by reducing hunger perception, which deranges our ability to connect our perception of need with our actual need. So you cannot use mindfulness in eating or just connecting with self, following your intuition. You cannot use that. Mm -hmm. And the harder you work out and the more serious you are about your workouts, the stronger the sympathetic nervous system response is and the greater the suppression of the hunger. It isn't until we're more relaxed, which tends to be at 3 and 9 p.m. So mm -hmm. at the end of, towards the end of the workday and towards the end of the day overall, where we, the body catches a slight breather and a slight relaxation, where all of a sudden not only the hunger kick, kicks in, which is a perception of current needs, but cravings kick in, which is a perception of earlier needs that mm -hmm. have passed. And a full, balanced, healthy meal will resolve the hunger, but it will not resolve the cravings, which is the body's incessant drive to recover what, it, what was lost in the past when you did not perceive a need. And the reason that so many athletes I've worked with have had the exact same problem is because they have the same, to some extent, sympathetic nervous system response to waking up and training and that so many of them do their hardest training early in the morning and therefore minimize how much they eat, not just because they don't perceive a need, but because they're about to do a hard workout. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Putting themselves into a deficit, into a trench that they can never emerge from, no matter how many smoothies, 12 meals, one meal, fasting, overeating, undereating, there's, they'll try everything and everything. Nothing will work. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Because their body is too incapacitated by being too deep in the starved state, not just fasted, starved for too many hours, that even though the healing is raised dramatically later on when they nourish their body, it isn't enough to overcome the deficit from earlier. And that's yeah. universal for all of us, yes. like whether you're that's an right. elite or not. Um yeah, I think we've all So I learned that. the hard way and through the papers that I've that I've been referring to that on my hardest workouts I need to get up an hour earlier to eat. Mm -hmm. For my medium workouts I can just put in some calories into the water and don't worry about it and for the lightest workouts if it's quick enough and low enough intensity I actually benefit from not eating at all. Mm. And it's really this kind of algorithmic engineering elementary school math approach that helps you tease apart what's the answer right now and how is that answer different on a different day mm -hmm. yeah so so interesting and so helpful and it sounds like the you know 
the lessons I asked this question about elite athletes, but this isn't this. There's not in your mind. Is there a difference? In your mind, is there a difference between the advice that you give to elite athletes and the things that you see for elite athletes versus you know kind of very ambitious non-elite athletes? Yes, mm. the recreational athlete is less likely to work out as hard in the morning is equally likely to work out hard in the afternoon or the evening. Mm. So the coincidence of crossing into the starved Mm. state from waking and not having eaten in 12 hours together with crossing into the starved state from the workout itself is not necessarily coincident in time in their day. Mm -hmm. And that makes it a lot easier to deal with unless the hard workout is late in the evening where it deranges sleep quality, which is then a whole separate issue. So competitive athletes are more likely to have a coincidence or a double whammy on the starvation effect. That's so interesting because it's not necessarily that they're an elite athlete or that they... Mm-hmm. run faster. It's just that they happen to be working out more often, harder in the morning. And so yes. they're at higher risk for that starvation state and thus ultimately overtraining. And when you when you crunch the numbers on you know how much do you, carbs you need, protein, calories, fats, and water and all this stuff, I mean, there might be a difference of a factor of two mm-hmm. in terms of what the athlete needs. But at what point they cross over into starvation is the same roughly 25% of their daily needs. Whether that daily need is 3,000 or 1,000, it's still one-fourth of whatever that number is. Mm -hmm. So with the few minutes we have left, and gosh, I can't believe how fast this went. It's just fascinating. I think we could talk for three hours. Um, A lot more than three hours. A lot more, even more than that. Um, I mean, in my 18-hour classes, I run out of time. (laughs) Well, we'll we'll have to have you back for sure. Um, But we had a question that came through, uh, you know, just before we started recording, which was about vegan and vegetarian diets for athletes, especially for women. And before we, we pressed recording, we were talking a little bit about this in terms of iron absorption. um, And you... We should have pressed recorded at the beginning, um, had a great response, and I thought that this would be really helpful for our listeners. Iron absorption is facilitated by avoiding its oxidation. So oxidized iron is not absorbed very well. So when a meal has a high antioxidant content, particularly vitamin C, which has been shown to be the most powerful antioxidant protecting iron in the intestine, you will dramatically increase absorption. Like in uh, kind of ivory tower studies where everything's optimized, it can increase it by an order of magnitude. So unless you're clinically low in iron, where a doctor is, is prescribing you iron, mm. the, uh, the um, kind of independent decision and approach to increasing iron intake into the bloodstream would be to increase vitamin C in meals keeping in mind that the International Olympic Committee and the International Society for Sports Nutrition, as well as myself, from my review of the literature, recommend against vitamin C around the time of your workout because it deranges your muscles' response to increasing VO2 max adaptation after heart heart endurance exercise. 
And this is because the free radicals that are produced during a hard workout trigger gene expression to increase VO2 max. And vitamin C blunts that so that at best, studies with humans have shown only half at best of the VO2 max increase from two to three months of endurance training. So the same vitamin C that's helping you to increase iron to raise hematocrit is also blunting the free radical, the acute short-term free radical response that drives the VO2 max adaptation. So that would mean, since the half-life of vitamin C is four to six hours in the body, that you wouldn't want to supplement with vitamin C in the three or four hours before a workout or in the one to two hours afterwards, but rather in sometime in the other 18 hours of your day, like the mm-hmm. two meals you're eating outside of that time frame, you could take 250, as much as 500 milligrams of vitamin C. Or if you're like me, where you like to use food instead of tablets of any kind, you'd have parsley, broccoli, or citrus, like tomato, uh, orange, uh, where there's about 30 milligrams of vitamin C per typical tomato or orange. And the highest vitamin C food is bell peppers, which is 80 milligrams per mm-hmm. average bell pepper. And I had a competitive marathoner who came to me with my mindset of let's use food as much as possible, mm-hmm. right? So mushrooms for vitamin D and bell peppers for vitamin C. And we created this crazy program just by dosing in different plants. It was really cool. And so he was having bell peppers like five times a day <laughs> to avoid uh, supplementing. And this is typically what doctors will prescribe when hematocrit is low, not just iron, but also vitamin C. Mm-hmm. And if they feel like uh, iron is, is contraindicated, then, then just vitamin C. Mm. And so that's something that anybody can do on their own is just start adding bell peppers or supplement with a low-level vitamin C tablet because past 250 milligrams, you're just going to urinate out most of the water-soluble vitamin C anyway. And so there's no need to go to a gram, especially since it has such a blunting effect on VO2 max. So really what you're, you're trying to optimize simultaneously is your training adaptation together with the iron levels that supports the training, right? So you, you have this competing... Uh, underlying mechanisms that fight against each other. But if you just do low-dose vitamin C outside of the window right around the workout, then you will optimize both effects to maximize adaptation from both the elevated iron and the acute free radicals that are then eliminated subsequently with your healthy eating. So for a vegan... Uh, you know, if, if uh, B12 is low, if you can include uh, sauerkraut or, or kimchi or any type of fermented food, the bacteria are what produce the, the vitamin, uh, the B complex, particularly B12. That's an issue because it can deplete after uh, six to 18 months, depending on how much was already stored in the body. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my experience in working with vegan athletes is, is that they, they tend to... Uh, keep in mind that when athletes come to me, they're usually overreached already, mm-hmm. right? So right. that means there's that there's something wrong with their nutrition, probably not their training, by the way, probably their nutrition. Mm-hmm. And so when a vegan athlete comes to me, they're following the vegan diet in a way that is not optimizing their healing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that means that I get athletes following deranged vegan diets as opposed to a balanced, healthy vegan diet. Mm-hmm. And so let me give you extreme two extreme examples of what that might look like. Vegan endurance athlete comes to see me and they basically just eat bread Mm -hmm. because that's from a plant. It's not from an animal. Or on the flip side of that, they just eat salad 
and no bread at all. Mm -hmm. They never refuel their body as if your sports car is going to run when you never put gas in the tank. Mm -hmm. So healthy fats and, and dark vegetables of whatever color it is nourish your body, but they do not give you the protein that's the building blocks of your muscle and the carbohydrate that refuels your muscle so that your gene expression will even use that protein. So separate out in your mind the aspect of nutrition that is the protein and the carbohydrate that maintains blood protein levels and blood sugar levels so that you can heal. Keep that separate in your mind from the healthy fats and the vegetables that nourish your body. And what I typically see in vegan athletes that self-select themselves as I'm struggling, let me go talk to Dr. Clyde, is that they're not balancing their vegan diet in the same way mm -hmm. that an athlete who comes to me that's, that's an omnivore is also not balancing mm -hmm. their diet. Mm -hmm. So I don't view a vegan diet as a barrier to the highest level of fitness as a contributor to performance for an athlete. What I view as the limiter is not eating a balanced diet where balance is defined by your training needs mm -hmm. to heal and adapt. So you know, where a higher, a higher training volume day has a higher carbohydrate load. So a balanced meal includes more than a cup of rice or pasta versus a recovery day where you still need some rice or pasta, but only one fourth to one third as much, mm -hmm. right? And so how you define balance changes dramatically from one day to the other. Balance means meeting your needs. Mm -hmm. And you can, if you refuel your workout sufficiently, mess up quite a bit in your meals and your body has tremendous adaptability and tolerance for messing up, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you start to detect a reduction in waking restfulness, mm -hmm. in delayed, exaggerated, delayed onset muscle soreness, or a brittle mental and or physical energy through the day, that's where you have to reassess. Until then, there's no reason to assess because there's, no, there's nothing to take action on. Mm -hmm. But long before you start reading books, asking people questions, coming to see me, spending a lot of time on blogs and reading nutrition articles, just use your common sense to ask yourself the question, how many hours in my day do I think that my body is in a deep deficit and hurting from that, vegan or not? Mm -hmm. And how many hours in my day might I be overeating to compensate for that excess deficit whether that happens early or late, if you're a competitive athlete, it's more likely to happen earlier in your day. Mm -hmm. If you're more a recreational athlete, then it's just as likely to happen in your afternoon or evening. Mm -hmm. And how you can fix that at least halfway. It doesn't mean everybody should start eating breakfast. That might not be a logistical reality for the majority of competitive athletes. For those who get up an hour or two before their early morning training, it is, as long as you have time to drink enough water to hydrate the digestion process so it's not still in your stomach when you start training. But for an athlete who rolls out of bed and they need to be training within 20 or 30 minutes, that's just not a possibility. So getting in even one-fourth of a breakfast has to be supplemented with putting calories into the water during. And this is true, vegan or not, right? So strike a balance between protecting and building your lean tissue to heal and adapt, which is blood protein and blood sugar and hydration, together with nourishment, which is the quality of the fats and the variety of the, of the colors and types of vegetables so that you get a variety of antioxidants, which has a much more powerful effect on healing than just broccoli and blueberries over and over and over again. Awesome. Uh, yeah, fantastic. Thank so you helpful. so much. Well, there's so much more that we could talk about, but we're going to end there. 
Um, we really appreciate your time and you sharing all of your knowledge. I know that you, uh, you know, when I reached out to you, I said you you changed my life and I wasn't being hyperbolic about it. You really did. And I think you've changed a lot of athletes' lives. So we're really grateful for you. I am grateful for that. And, <laughs> and you know, it, there's only one reason to do this work. Mm-hmm. If you're not helping anybody, you mm-hmm. need to rethink that. Yeah. In the same way that if your doms is too high and lasting too long, you have to rethink something <laughs> yeah. too. <laughs> All right. That was a lot of fun. Thank yes, you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Dr. Clyde Wilson. You can find Dr. Wilson on Twitter at Dr. Clyde Wilson, and we're going to link some of the papers and articles that he mentioned in our show notes to our website. So make sure to check out those show notes and click on those links to our website so that you can read more about what he talked about. As always, you can find us at Runners of the Bay on Twitter and on Instagram. And please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We would also be so grateful if you could leave a rating and review. Thank you so much, and we will talk to you soon.